We now turn to Isaiah chapter 37. Isaiah 37, in our National Day of Prayer, we did consider verses 1 through um, 8. No, we did go into chapter 37 all the way to verse 22. Um, I will begin reading in verse 8 of chapter 37. You'll remember how the Lord, through Isaiah, did say that Rebshekah would have to retrieve. He heard a rumor, and verse 8 begins there. So Rebshekah returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. And he heard say concerning Terhaka, king of Ethiopia, he has come forth to make war with thee. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, So this message would have come through Sennacherib. Thus shall ye speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God, in whom thou trustest, deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given unto the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed as Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the children of Eden which were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arphad and the kings of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena and Iva? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up unto the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubim, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee, and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee, whom thou hast reproached and blasphemed. And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice, and lifted up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? By thy servants hast thou reproached the Lord, and hast said, By the multitude of my chariots am I come up to the height of the mountain, to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the tail cedars thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the height of his border, and the forest of his carmel. I have digged and drunk water, and with the sole of my feet I have dried up all the rivers of the besieged places." Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it, and of ancient times that I have formed it? Now have I brought it to pass that thou should be to lay waste defensed cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops, and as corn blasted before it goes is be grown up. But I know thy abode and thy going out and thy coming in and thy rage against me, because thy rage against me and and thy tumult is come up into mine ears. Therefore I will put my hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips, 
And I will turn thee back by the way by which thou camest. And this shall be a sign unto thee. Ye shall eat this year such as groweth of itself, and the second year that which springeth of the same. And in the third year sow ye and reap, and plant vineyards, and eat the fruit thereof. This, this sign would be directed to Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, shall do this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into the city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. That's 185,000 troops. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. May God Amen. The king who prayed. Uh, dear congregation, this is the theme of this message as we look at chapter 37 um, of Isaiah. In the midst of a world power that was the Assyrian Empire who had dominated the the known world surrounding um, Hezekiah, surrounding Jerusalem, Egypt, and Ethiopia. You see a battle raging with Ethiopia. They had conquered most of the area of Mesopotamia. The Babylonian kingdom was not an empire yet. It was under the rule of the Assyrians. They were the empire of the day. Um, It had been taking one nation after another. Whoever resisted was destroyed. Many were reduced to slavery. And the ones who remained and surrendered were forced to pay tribute. And in the midst of all of this, we find a king who prayed. This This is what we have, not only in chapter 37, but also chapter 36. Um, Hezekiah stands out as a man who heard the sermons that his pastor, Isaiah, preached. You know, we've, we've been bringing Isaiah through, through some of the Sundays. We've been studying it in our prayer meetings. And, and you'll remember just the summary how chapter after chapter, God was condemning the nations because they had this one Problem that kept repeating. Not to say it was the only one. There was a lot of other things, corruption and immorality and lies. But this one thing that these nations kept doing is that they were trusting man rather than God. And even when they had their own idols, it was a human fabrication. But when one nation was in danger, they wouldn't go to God. They would go to the most powerful nation neighboring them. And then another nation in danger, they would go to another king. And remember, then God singled it out of how Israel had done exactly that and trusted kings instead of the king of kings. And then Judah did exactly that. And the warnings were, stop, stop doing it. And then remember, chapter 35 is, in in summary, it's the concept of a desert, a wilderness. And God was saying, this is what will happen to you if you trust in man. And then chapter 35, the summary of that chapter is a garden, a precious, beautiful, fruit-bearing garden. And God was saying, this is what will happen to you if you trust in me. 
And then after all of this, we have these two chapters, 36 and 37, that are a real life example of, of kings threatening other kings. And there are kings who bow to other kings because of those threats. And we have this one king, Hezekiah, who learned his message. That's, that's why I say some commentaries bring this. He, he heard those sermons and he's now ready to obey. And how ready is he to obey? He is so ready to obey that even... We just saw 36. Chapter 36, it was Rabshakeh coming with all those threats. And so, yes, Hezekiah learned, I'm not going to trust other kings. I'm not going to be worried about Rabshakeh. I'm going to go to God. And he goes to God. Remember, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He sends his messengers to go to Isaiah so that Isaiah will lift up his prayers to God. Immediately, the answer comes back. I will bring a rumor to Rabshakeh, and he will leave, and he will not enter in. And it happened. And so Hezekiah's been living, okay, my prayers were answering, and he was certainly grateful, and he was certainly joyful, but we start in chapter 37, and we, we start with this, with this message that comes now from Sennacherib. Well, Sennacherib's the one who sent Rabshakeh, but he was the main character last time. And now we have um, Sennacherib's letter. Um, we're, we're going to follow today just looking at this sequence of our narrative, the, the threat that comes through Sennacherib. And then we'll look at the prayer to some degree. We did look a lot at this prayer in our National Day of Prayer. So we'll just look at some other points that we didn't bring And then thirdly, the answer from the Lord. But see, notice this reality. These two chapters have these two parallel sequences. Exactly the same. Rebshekah's threats, they lead to Hezekiah's reaction. And this brings God's reply through Isaiah. And then Rebshekah's retreat. That's exactly the pattern. He threatened, Hezekiah reacted because he prayed, he asked the prophet to pray, the prophet brought the answer and it was Rabshakeh is going to leave and he does. But now in, in, in the second portion it follows exactly the same. It, it is a letter from Sennacherib, so it's Sennacherib's threats. We will find Hezekiah's reply and his reaction. Then we have God's reply, God's Answer through Isaiah, and we will see Sennacherib's demise, Sennacherib's retreat. And, and the reason that it's important to note that it's twice is that you could think, think of your own reality, how you may have a challenge that is very big and it's hard enough to understand the right things to do and that you need to trust the Lord and not men and not put your trust in money, not put your trust in wealth or, or powerful people and you're going to trust God. And that's what Hezekiah did. But lo and behold, Sennacherib sends this letter. And, and see, this is our first point, the threat. So the thing you have to be thinking is, Hezekiah is being tested the second time. And this is not just a little temptation. This is, this is like a promise that we will come to destroy your kingdom, Hezekiah. Turn yourself over. And turning yourself over did not mean good things. At the beginning of some pursuits, it could have been less things. And they could all live there and just pay tribute. But see, when they were already doing that for a while and they insisted in revolution, then the kings would come with a vengeance. Rebshekah already promised that even though we'll treat you kindly, we're going to take you captive. Who likes that? That is a very hard way to surrender. To know that you'll have to say goodbye to your possessions, to life as you know it, to your livelihood, and all the questions of where is this land we're going to? And Hezekiah is responsible for all his people. And so now he's tempted. Do I trust man or do I trust God? And this is what's so precious about this second portion is that it follows the same pattern. And after, after the threat comes, Hezekiah goes to God the first time. The threat comes the second time. He goes to God the second time. And that, that is the, the, the main point and the blessed point of these passages. That, that in both events, even with the danger that in his humanity he would now be a failure and say, well, I trusted God the first time. 
apparently it didn't work, so now I will do plan B. He does not do plan B. And what God is teaching with 36 and 37 is believer. It doesn't matter how many times there may be afflictions from out there and even from our own hearts. Never, ever, ever trust a thing or a person. It is always God whom you must trust, even if you think he did not answer the first time. And the message, of course, is or the second or the third. Because it's never true. See, the world will be like Rabshakeh's in Sennacherib. This is what they're saying. Don't let your king deceive you that God will come to your help. What is that? That is Satan telling your heart and mind, don't think God will answer your prayer. And notice that we we did mention this when we think of the threat of Sennacherib. This is even what, what brought us to, to, to bring Isaiah to our morning services. Because in our Lord's days, we're, we're seeing the sin of taking God's name in vain. And we saw that Rebshekah did it. He blasphemed the Lord. And Sennacherib will take this blasphemy to a whole different level. Rebshekah said, don't let Hezekiah deceive you saying that your God will protect you. Sennacherib's letter says directly, don't let your God, whom you have trusted, deceive you. Remember we saw last Lord's Day that Rebshekah committed the fatal error there? Well, you can multiply this infinitely because now Sennacherib is accusing God directly. He's not just comparing God with the gods of the nations, which is bad enough. He is accusing God at his very face. Let not thy God, in whom thou trusted, verse 10, deceive thee. This is probably how he's thinking. You know, Isaiah will be your prophet and he'll say something that your God said. Well, don't believe that. It can't be because look at the nations that I've been conquering and my fathers. And we're growing and we're developing. Come, come with the ages. You need to understand and don't be deceived by your God. And so this very important point in our, in our first point, the threat, is to realize that however, um, there, there's this parallel too. Reb Sheka's threat was a lot more wordy and there's a lot more to it. And he committed blasphemy. Sennacherib's letter here is abbreviated. It's it's small, but it's more profound. The sin is greater because now he's accusing God to his very face. And and this would be a good time to to read from from the catechism, from the Heidelberg. In page 74, it was page 73 that we saw the first Lord's Day regarded to the third commandment. And that was regarding not taking God's name in vain more directly. But there's a second Lord's Day regarding the third commandment. That's Lord's Day 37. That's page 74. Um, and this one, it, it, is not, it is not exactly this way that Seneca broke the commandment, but it'll be connected to how Hezekiah didn't break the third commandment. If I said second commandment, I meant third commandment. So, 74, question 101 of Lord's Day 37. May we then swear religiously by the name of God. So it's considering the whole concept of if we can't use God's name in vain. What's the whole concept of swearing, making promises? Can we make promises in the name of God? And here's the answer. Yes, either when the magistrates demand it, like in a court situation of the subjects, or when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. For such an oath is founded on God's word and therefore was justly used by the saints both in the Old and New Testament. So of course it's saying that yes we can and in essence we can only make a promise in the name of God. We can't use other things to make promises but they have to be very serious things. And, and of course, when we make vows, marriage vows, and vows of your confession of faith vows, or vows of being an elder and being a deacon, those are oaths that we make in the name of God. And then question 102, may we also swear by saints or any other creatures? No. 
For a lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart, that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely, which honor is due to no creature. And so the way I'm considering to justify looking at this part of the third commandment with this sermon is it's all connected with honoring God's name. We've seen an example of one dishonoring, and there's another example today of one who's blaspheming God's name. But we have the example of at least two people, and there's others, of course, around Hezekiah, who are upholding God's name. Hezekiah, to be a king, made a vow that he would rule under God. And I want you to see that as he goes to prayer, instead of going to people, he is keeping that vow. He is not breaking the vow that he made to God and to God's people. Even while he's living in the context of someone so, so greatly breaking that commandment and blaspheming God again. So we, we, we learn what we read. This is why I referenced that when we read the law, that God will not acquit someone who uses his name in vain. Unless, of course, that person repents. That, that context is not that if you use God's name in vain, there's no forgiveness. It's, it's if you use his name in vain and you don't repent, like Sennacherib and Rabshakeh. And so we're seeing, boys and girls, the seriousness of, of using God's name in vain. And this is why we don't think it's right to, to just use God's name in a, in a light way concerning simple life situation. You, you, you have a, a, a car that does a, a wrong turn and then somebody might use God's name connected to that just because they're upset. And, and we have to be careful. And of course, the way they're using it here is even more profound in how they're blaspheming. So this is the threat This threat that he's receiving is a man who's blaspheming God. And it's it's very powerful to think that if you go to verse 23, when you hear what God has to say about Sennacherib, he says this, Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? It's, It's God who is saying, Yes, he is blaspheming my name. And so this is the threat. Now let's look at the prayer. Um, this is, of course, the very precious part of, of this passage. And, and we haven't seen also yet the, the reply of the Lord. But let's look at the, the prayer. What, what we considered um, in our National Day of Prayer was mainly some principles that we see in this prayer. And, and I pointed them out that there's humility in this prayer. There's a sense of dependence, great sincerity, like there's a genuineness in the heart of Hezekiah. And that was in his prayer that, that is um, earlier than what we read today. And then, of course, the perseverance. This is what we see now because he, he is praying the second time. And, and he's being genuine. And he's not, like I mentioned, he's not giving up. He's persevering. And, of course, all of this indicates faith. And, and the fact that we see the result, we, we, we see happening here exactly what we read in James 5.16, that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know, this prayer is, is completely in that category. It is fervent. It is, it is of a righteous man. And it is effectual. And it avails much. The answer comes that very moment, that very day. Um, we see here the reality of James 1, 5. This is the, the faith element. In James 1, verse 5, we read, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that gives to all men liberally, and abrades not, and it shall be given him. But then this detail, but let, it, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. So the importance of faith in prayer. God graciously answers even prayer with little faith. We've been seeing this example of when Peter was released from, from prison and he goes to the home where, um, where that little girl Rhoda doesn't open the door because she's so excited and when he tells all the people, they can't believe it's him. But they were praying for him to be delivered. So their faith wasn't so great, but God answered that prayer. It's encouraging. Because it doesn't matter how much faith we have. But 
That doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for greater faith. Because of what we've read. Let us not waver in our faith. And if we ask in faith, God will give it. There is a promise. And even if it's little faith, but let us strive for fervent faith, for more faith. We see this in Hezekiah in his prayer. Now notice, notice this, this balance that is happening in the passage. Um, um, there was... What's happening here is there are two kings that are in essence at battle against another. There's one king accusing the God of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is one king who keeps um, connecting to his God. And that first king, the first king, he sent Rebshekah and he blasphemed God. And then now he sends this letter that blasphemes God even more strongly. Well, Hezekiah... Before we saw that he put on sackcloth and went to the temple to pray. We didn't hear his prayer at that point. But now we hear his prayer. And it seems like what Hezekiah is doing, as, as, as strong as the blasphemy, blaspheming God is, well, the more I'm going to come to God and depend fervently upon him. The more he mocks my God, the more I will magnify my God. The more he declares what my God cannot do, the more I will declare what my God can do. If you despise my God, I will exalt my God. Sennacherib considered himself the great king, and Hezekiah declares God alone of all the kingdoms. You see what, what Hezekiah is doing when he says that? He is saying, You, Sennacherib, are under his rule. He is your king. And and I don't know if you've heard some parts. It's it's a long procedure, the coronation of the new king in England. You can see little parts. And there was one little part that I saw. that It's always astonishing the amount of Christian liturgy in the whole procedure. It is a worship service, the crowning. And I don't know if you noticed that little moment where a young little boy at the very beginning comes and, and welcomes the king. And he says, in the name of the king of kings, we welcome you. And it's so precious to think that they're setting the tone that the crowning of this man is under the authority of a greater king. And of course, the script of what Charles was to say was to say And in his name I come. And also following his example. Not to serve, but to not to be served, but to serve. So it's a precious thought to think that that man is being humbled before he is crowned to understand there is a greater king. This is the message that Sennacherib needed to learn. But he thought he was as a God. Then Sennacherib also accused Jehovah of being deceptive. So what does Hezekiah do? He proclaims God the creator of the heaven and the earth. He's he's the maker of everything. Sennacherib, you came from this God. You cannot turn around and call him a deceiver. Calvin says it like this. He says, before forming any prayer... He overturns the delusions by which Satan had endeavored to shake his courage. Calvin is bringing a thought that brings a very strong application. See, when Sennacherib was saying what he said about the God of Hezekiah, you could think of Satan in the background trying to make Hezekiah waver. A temptation for Hezekiah to believe those lies. To think, maybe my God isn't that powerful. See, that's exactly what Satan did to Eve in the garden. Sennacherib is is like, like a tempter so that Hezekiah would fall. But what does Hezekiah do? See, he says, no, I will undo all of that lie and I will bring the truth of who my God is. I will do what this man has, in essence, undone. And this, beloved, is what we have to do. As soon as you have those whispers, maybe God didn't hear your prayer. Maybe God doesn't care for you. Maybe maybe this isn't so important to God. You have to turn around and, and say, Lord, you are good 
thou alone, Lord. Thou art sovereign. I will trust thee. I will not believe these lies. Help me, God. Help me not listen to these whispers of Satan, of these Sennacheribs of the day. And then remember that reality that, that Israelites always lived, Jewish people, the, Jew, the people from Judah, especially Jerusalem, because that's where their temple was. They lived with this mockery toward them that your God doesn't exist. We don't see it. There's no statue. There, it's invisible. And he, and he turns that taunt around in, in his prayer. And he, and he says... Um, that thou art God, even thou, oh, at the very beginning, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubim. And he's very likely making a reference to the holy place, the holy of holies, where the cherubim were over the um, Ark of the Covenant. And remember, there were also cherubims who were um, drawn and painted on, on, the, on the sides and carved. So... He is saying, yes, Lord, thou art invisible, but that's not bad. That's actually good. Thou art so great and and transcends our capacity to see. See, this, this, this is what really speaks of the greatness of a God who cannot be seen by us mere human unless he makes himself visible. And so he says, you do exist and you dwell in the midst of the cherubim. You are ruling upon this whole earth. So that, that was the, the, the first part of his prayer. And then comes the request. There's really two parts in his prayer. It is where he's praising God. He's, he's undoing what Sennacherib did. He's, he's doing the opposite. And then he requests. Um, now notice this. If you're, if you're with a threat that a karmi is going to come, of course your first request in a sense, in a natural way, would say, Lord, protect us. But it hasn't been that. He comes to God and he praises God. It's like hearing from somebody that they, they have a very horrible disease and you're going to go to prayer. But instead of mentioning even the person, you start praising God. That's what Hezekiah is doing. But then he does pray for safety. He says it very briefly, um, written in, in the prayer in verse 17. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which had sent um, to reproach the living God. And then he says, it's, it's true, there, there are a lot of things that this nation has done. And these false gods have been burnt because they weren't true gods. And then verse 20. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from His hand. That is the request. Save us from His hand. But then look what it says. That all the nations. Verse 20. That that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. So even when he asks for protection, it is, it is encapsulated under the theme of God's glory. He, he is literally saying, Lord, if it is to protect us, I only ask so that thou would be glorified. Um, one, one commentator, John Oswald, says this, All too often our well-being is the end, and God is only a means to that end. Here Hezekiah demonstrates the opposite. God is the end and deliverance is the means. You see what he says? Lord, for you to be glorified, we need to be saved. So please save us. But because we want your glory. You see, that that is really his ultimate desire. His, His great desire is that God would be vindicated. The blasphemies would be shown for what they are. And and even for that to happen, we need to be saved. So please save us, Lord. It's It's not selfish in the least. It is focusing completely upon God and His glory. Matthew Henry says it like this, We have enough to take hold of in our wrestling with God by prayer. If we can but plead that His glory is interested in our case, that His name will be profaned if we are run down and glorified, if we are relieved, thence therefore will our most prevailing plea be drawn. Do it 
for thy glory's sake. It's exactly what Jesus prayed in the garden. Not my will, but thy will be done. And that was Hezekiah's prayer. So we saw the threat, the prayer. Now let us go to the answer. In verse 22, and, and this is what's very dramatic in the text. It, it, the indication is that no, no sooner Hezekiah was there praying, Isaiah the son of Amos, in verse 21, sent unto Hezekiah, saying, So it was soon. It was a matter maybe of, of that very prayer. And then as he lingers in the temple, he saw these messengers with the message of Isaiah. And he, and he says, This is what the Lord has says, Whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. You have prayed, Hezekiah, the Lord has heard, and I have the answer that God wants you to know. Let, let's go through it. Um, Um, little bit by little bit. Notice what's happening. When we get to this point, we notice this sequence. Sennacherib spoke to Hezekiah about Jehovah. And he was speaking bad about Jehovah. So Hezekiah, he goes to the Lord and speaks about Sennacherib. And he's just saying, Lord, listen to what Sennacherib did. Listen to what he said. And now, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks to Hezekiah about Sennacherib. There's this very simple mathematical structure. A king dared to challenge Hezekiah's God. Hezekiah went to his God and told him. He kind of told on Sennacherib. And he understood that God heard, but, but... God wants our prayers, and He knows that. And God comes and says, This is what will happen to this man that you prayed to me about. And in all of this narrative, what we see happening, not, not only those verses that the prayer of a fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, also Hebrews eleven six that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. There are these general thoughts first. How, how quickly the reply came. Such a blessing. It came through Isaiah the prophet. Um, in, in coming, we, we see this, that God always has the last word, not man. That's when we get in trouble, is if we think we have the last word. Or, or if we're in trouble because we see people threatening and we're too worried about their words and we need to realize, no, there's God's word. And we don't have to worry. God will have the last word. This is what's happening here in the text. And this is the reply. Um, To give a few headings as we go through verse 22 down. The first thing is that he turns the table on Sennacherib. Sennacherib came with his taunts through Rebshekah and then his own letter. Just despising the God of Israel. Despising the people of Judah. Now God turns the table when it speaks of the virgin daughter of Zion um, that has despised thee and laughed thee to scorn, it's God saying, Sennacherib, you have taunted my people. My people, because they're the Zion, they're the daughters of Zion, they will be looking at you with their taunts and their mockery. And, and it's precious to think that it's God saying that that will happen. It's not them being proud as if saying, Um, Well, you said this to us. Now we get to say this to you. It's God saying that this will happen. My people will have the last word against yours because of me, of course. And then secondly, we we see that that he puts Sennacherib in an inquisition. Sennacherib is, is put, as it were, on the bar. And he is put to answer these questions. Verse 23, whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high? Do do you know who you're talking to, Sennacherib? Do you realize who the God of Israel is? And he he answers his very um, question against the Holy One of Israel. He puts him into the Inquisition and he answers 
his own questions. The next little following is he reminds him of his own boasts, of how he would conquer with his chariots and how he would do all his different things. But see, in all of that that he had been doing with other nations, then um, if you go to verse 26, look what God says. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it? See, all that we read in verses 24 and 25, which is all these amazing things he did, I have digged and drunk water, verse 25, with the sole of my feet have I dried up the rivers of the besieged places. See, that's what the Assyrians were doing. They were going everywhere and devastating everything. And then God says like this, "Um, do you not understand I'm the sovereign one? I have done these things. See, what God is saying is, yes, You have been used for ruling all around and even disciplining my people, Israel. I'm the one who sent you there. I'm the one who wanted judgment upon them. This never means in any way that all of the sins of the Assyrian armies are impugned upon the Lord. It's never in that sense, but it's God saying, I am sovereign over everything that has happened. Do not take the glory to yourself. You're being used as a servant of mine. I am sovereign. He's reminding him of his boasts and reminding him of his sovereignty. When you go to verse 28, in essence, he's saying, I know where you live. That's exactly what he says. But I know thy abode. This is a judge who doesn't have the criminal right there at the bar. But it's writing as it were a letter saying, I know where you live. I know how to get you. This is one thing that happens, right? In, in the scenario of crime, people shoot and they leave. Sometimes you never find them. But God is in essence saying, I know where to find you. You can't hide from me. And then he says what he will do. Because thy rage, verse 29, against me, and thy tumult is come into mine ears, therefore I will put my hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips. He will treat him like, like an ox and just bring him at his will. And he says, and I will turn thee back by the way by which thou camest. And then verse 30, this sign that he gives, it it can be a sign to Sennacherib because Sennacherib will see that Judah will prosper. But he he does say, and this shall be a sign unto thee. And he's speaking more as it were to Hezekiah that all of these things are true. And it's all speaking of how they will stay there one generation, two generations, three generations. They will continue living in Judah for a few more years. And that is exactly what happened um, they, they had a lot longer time than Israel in the north that was taken by the Assyrians. Judah was only taken by the next king, the next empire that was the Babylonian Empire. So it was a couple hundred years still to go. And God is saying, that will be my sign that these things will happen. And then comes the sentence. And the sentence is in verse 29, um, we read, yes, you'll be arrested. When we think of God just taking him like an ox, it's basically saying, you're going to be arrested. Um, You will return. There will be nothing to boast. There will be no war that you will fight. No, No reward that you will take back. And then the last thing is that he will die in his own land. The way we know this is because if we go back to chapter 37, where Isaiah gave the first message, he says in verse 7 of chapter 37, I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. That could have been fulfilled with Rabshakeh, but we know for sure it was fulfilled with Sennacherib. Verse 37 of chapter 37. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherazer, his sons, smote him with a sword and they escaped into the land of Armenia. So God arrested him, humbled him because he returned empty-handed, and executed him 
And God said, I will protect you, Hezekiah. Verse 35, for I will defend this city to save it. Now, I want to close with two thoughts. And one of the thoughts comes from this phrase in verse 35. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So keep that phrase in your mind. And these are the two thoughts that I close today with. First, the thought of two temples. Now, there are a lot of twos here, right? There are two kings, Sennacherib and Hezekiah. There are two gods that are being challenged. Sennacherib's God, he thinks, is greater. He's challenging Hezekiah's God, who's actually the true God. But in both occasions that Hezekiah receives the threats, he goes to the temple of his God and he prays. And he spreads it out before God. And this whole passage ends with Sennacherib also going to the temple of his God. See, there are two temples in this whole context. Sennacherib goes home, and by the time Sennacherib died, this would have been quite a few years later. It wasn't instant. But this is how he died, and it's recorded here in, in Isaiah. He went to worship his God. He went to his temple. Presumably, he would be there praying. We, we don't know if there was some war that he was praying the protection of his God, but we know he's there serving his God in the temple of his God. But when he goes there, he dies. Hezekiah goes twice to the temple of his God, and not only he lives, but all of Jerusalem lives. When Sennacherib goes to the temple of his God, he dies. But this is a thought to lead to this last thought which would be, where, where do we find Christ in this passage? Because it's always important that we not just see this as a history lesson, and we do learn spiritually that we should always go to God and not to man. But there's something very precious about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why I read that verse where God says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. There is that level that David, the king whom God was according to God's own heart. God had promised to David that he would always bring a king to be on the throne. So this promise to the physical David led, although, to the reality of a promise regarding the greater than David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, if Hezekiah had died, the line from whom Jesus would come would have ended. And of course, we could think, well, God could use another Davidic. No, but see, God had chosen Hezekiah. Hezekiah had a son, and then that son had another son. And you trace that lineage directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Hezekiah had to live. And this is why God is saying, I promised to David that there would be a Davidic king because the Messiah will come. And he will not die. And now this is the preciousness to put this all together. When Sennacherib goes to the temple of his God, his very sons come and kill him. When Hezekiah goes to the temple of his own God, his God allows Hezekiah to live. So there's Manasseh, and then the next king, and the next king, and boys and girls, many, many other people, all the way to Joseph and Mary, and then Jesus was born, who is the Son of God. So Sennacherib goes to the temple of his God, and his sons kill him. Hezekiah goes to the temple of his God, and that God says, I will send my son, and he will die. For you. Hezekiah was not slain by anybody, not even the enemies, and certainly not by a son. He didn't have yet a son who would rule in the throne. But he had the promise, and the promise that for us it's fulfilled, a son who would come to die. 
And this, every time I see the, the violence in, in our world, I'm always shocked with this reality. We, we live in a world when it's, when, it's the, when it's the terrorism, it's these people who in their death, they want to kill a lot of people. And then you have these shootings, and they often are killing themselves too. And they just want to see death and death and death. And our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, He came to die so that you can live. And this is where this sermon can prepare us for the Lord's Supper. We, we will come next Lord's Day, Lord willing, and come around a table. And when we look at those tokens of wine and bread, we are looking at tokens that point to someone's death. But with the joy that in that death we have life. And so we, we come like Hezekiah, bringing all our petitions and all our needs, but with a desire to glorify the name of God. And even you can think this way, I'm, I'm not going to come to the Lord's Supper to elevate me. I don't deserve coming. I have so much sin. I need the very sacrifice of Christ to forgive me and to cleanse me. But Lord, if it will glorify thy name for me to come, then I want to come. Because I have nothing in me that is worthy enough. When the form speaks of coming in a worthy manner, it is that manner that you acknowledge the worthiness of God. It is never anything that exalts man. And so let us have that in our hearts, that we would glorify God in coming. If we only come, if we can only come in that manner, and that might involve repentance. It might involve um, um, talking to people. It might involve meditating upon what Jesus has done so that you know and think about what it means. But let us, let us have joy in our hearts that we have the same God as Hezekiah. And the world is full of Senecaribs, but do not let them distract you, beloved. Let us... Lay it always before our great and glorious God who sent His Son so that we may live. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we thank Thee, Lord, for Thy Word. We thank Thee for Hezekiah's prayer twice. We thank Thee, Lord, for his perseverance. We thank Thee that he didn't give up. We know, Lord, that he was human. Help us, Lord, to understand the, the tensions and the difficulties, and we pray, Lord, that we, would, that we would learn to persevere, that we would pray in faith. Lord, there are so many today who are assailing and blaspheming thy name, and we, we want to pray, Lord, like Hezekiah's. Listen, Lord, to these accusations. Listen, Lord, to their, their threats. And we do pray, Lord, for protection but only so that thy name, Lord, would be glorified as thy church is protected by thee. And prepare our hearts, Lord, for next Lord's Day, we ask. And be with every one of our loved ones. We pray, O oh Lord, for those who are um, about to profess their faith in the coming future. Bless their hearts, Lord, as they consider what that profession means. Be with those who have professed um, recently that they may see that their Ability to come does not stand upon what they have even confessed, but upon the God whom they trust, if they truly do and are truly living for Him. And we pray, Lord, fill our hearts with joy that we may remember the Lord's death until He comes. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.